Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Best in the Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Vonsayo, is set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Starting today with the football side of things and looking at the Super Bowl, of course, the big event took place last night, a game that, as I had predicted, was going to take all 60 minutes to decide a winner. It was the Los Angeles Rams, as you all know, came out on top 23-20 to after Matthew Stafford led the game-winning touchdown drive with less than two minutes to go in the fourth quarter. Of course, there was some discrepancy in that game because of the officiating. For those of you who may not necessarily be aware of what that discrepancy was, I will present that to you in a clear and concise manner. Basically, throughout the game, there were not a lot of penalties called on either side. Nothing more than delay of game, false starts, and of course, a taunting penalty that occurred against the Cincinnati Bengals. So, in essence, the referees were just letting the boys play, which is a refereeing approach that you commonly see. The difference was is that when it got down to that final drive where Stafford led the touchdown drive to ultimately win the game, the officials started calling holding and pass interference against Cincinnati, including several times down near the end zone that ultimately gave the Rams multiple attempts at first and goal, and they found a way to punch it in. So the discrepancy in the officiating was based upon the fact that they let them play all game and then decided to start calling penalties in the last two minutes of 60. Now, this is where it gets a little ticky-tacky because by definition, were they penalties? Yes, absolutely. Very blatant, very obvious. Holding, pass interference, whatever you want to call it, blatantly obvious. The issue being is that they let it go the entire first three quarters and the first 13 minutes of the fourth quarter. You can't let stuff go for 58 minutes and then call it when it gets down to that final possession because I can now understand why Bengals fans are saying that they kind of got screwed in a way or got cheated out in a way because they didn't have any sort of calls throughout the game, either side really. Now, there was a there was an instance earlier in the game where the Bengals and T. Higgins in particular got away with a wide open, about as blatant as it can get, face mask penalty against Jalen Ramsey. It was not called. The Bengals went down to score a touchdown. So, really, in a way... You could make the argument that the no call and the call late in the game essentially canceled themselves out. But Rams fans, they're going to say that 
the Bengals fans are still going to feel as though they've been cheated and they should not have lost that Super Bowl. But part of the issue was as well, moving on from the officials, was that the Bengals didn't necessarily show up to play in the fourth quarter. They scored 10 points in the first half compared to the Rams 13. I knew the Rams and expected them to very much go into halftime with the lead. That was something that everybody could see from a mile away happening. However, the Bengals came out strong in the third quarter, had a 10-3 lead in terms of points in that third quarter to turn around a three-point deficit from halftime to then a four-point advantage as they led 20-16. to The fourth quarter, however, was very much a defensive game, but the Bengals put up a goose egg. No points in the fourth quarter. You can't, in a game that you knew was going to take all 60 minutes, you absolutely cannot put up zero points in a quarter. They were fortunate enough, really both sides were fortunate enough, to get away with putting up single-digit points in for the Rams in each of the four quarters, for the Bengals in the first two quarters. The Bengals were fortunate that the game wasn't out of reach at halftime. The Rams were lucky that the Bengals never really were able to break open the game, but that's in part because the defensive lines were getting to both quarterbacks. But where it gets tough for the Bengals was late in the game, in part because of their goose egg on the board, but it goes back to a situation where after the Bengals scored a field goal in the third quarter to make it 20-13, to 13, that was with 4th-23 left to play. What hurt the Bengals after that was that they did not tack on any more points after that. Here was the sequence after that field goal from McPherson. Punt, 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 turnover on downs to lose the game. They punted on four of their last five possessions, and the fifth, they turned it over on downs because they had to go for it and didn't convert. You can't punt on four straight possessions late in the fourth quarter and expect to win the game. That just, it simply cannot happen. I don't care how good of a defense you have, defensive line, secondary, etc. You can't punt on four straight possessions and four of the last five without being punished. And ultimately, the Bengals were punished. Now, I mentioned Friday that the defensive lines were going to have a say in this game. And they very much did. Both teams really struggled to run the football. Could not get anything going between the trenches. And I knew that was exactly what was going to happen because of how poor the offensive lines are. 
the Rams, 23 rushing attempts, 43 yards. Cam Akers led the way, 13 attempts, 21 yards. As for the Bengals, they had 20 attempts and 79 yards. Mixon led the way, 15 attempts on 72 yards. 72 yards on 15 attempts, I should say. So the Bengals had a little bit more success running the football, but neither team surpassed 85 yards. No team surpassed 100 yards. The Rams couldn't even surpass 50 yards. And it was a game dominated by moving the ball through the air. And the Rams came out on top in that category and ultimately won the game. And that was despite Matthew Stafford throwing two interceptions. Of course, Joe Burrow took care of the football. No picks against him, but he only threw one touchdown pass. Of course, Joe Mixon threw a touchdown pass, so they ultimately had two passing touchdowns. But Matt Stafford had three passing touchdowns. That's the difference right there. That's the difference. And then when you look at the teams in terms of defensive stats, the Rams in this game had a total of seven sacks. The Bengals, on the other hand, they had two sacks. So it was the Rams' defensive line dominating the Bengals' offensive line much more than the Bengals' defense was dominating the Rams' offense. And that's not to say Matt Stafford didn't get hit or any sort. It wasn't like it was clean aside from those two sacks because Matthew Stafford got hit a lot. It was just that Matthew Stafford was able to either buy himself enough time or had enough time to get rid of the football before he ultimately got sacked. And you can... It's, I guess I shouldn't say never. It is very, very unlikely that you are ever going to win a football game when you have your quarterback get sacked seven times. And every coach in the NFL, even Sean McVay, and especially Zach Taylor, should be looking at their rosters, particularly their offensive line, and saying, how can I make this better? How can I find a way to protect my quarterback better? Because I will be completely honest. If Joe Burrow had better protection and didn't get sacked seven times in that game, the Bengals probably win. I shouldn't even say probably. I would bet money that they would have won that game if Joe Burrow didn't get sacked seven times. You can't have your quarterback get sacked seven times and win the game. Of course, it's certainly a possibility. It's not impossible because if you really think about it, nothing is impossible if you set your mind to it. But the Rams put themselves in the best opportunity to win by getting to Burrow, and it ultimately paid off, especially in the second half. That's why the Bengals had to punt on their last on four of their last five possessions was because the Rams were really getting to Joe Burrow in the second half. 
and the Bengals couldn't do anything about it because their offensive line is poor. And, you know, this really makes me think, even though Ben Roethlisberger was a fraction of what he used to be the past two seasons in 2021 and 2020, what would this Steelers team have been like if the offensive line in both of those years was competent enough to give Big Ben time to throw? What would those teams have done possibly in the playoffs or done better in the regular season had Ben been able to look for multiple reads and not be so preoccupied on throwing five-yard drag routes across the middle or a three-yard out route because he knew his offensive line wasn't going to give him the time to throw. And that's in part why the Bengals struggled so much yesterday was because they have very talented receivers in T. Higgins, Jamar Chase, Tyler Boyd. But they are all very much a similar type of receiver who rely upon getting downfield 15, 20 yards and then making a play and adding on some in terms of yards after the catch. But Joe Burrow didn't have the time to get them those 15, 20-yard throws consistently the way that the Bengals did in the regular season, in part because they weren't going up against as strong of defensive lines like they did last night against the Rams. So again, it stresses the idea that offensive lines are very much important still in today's NFL. Not just in the run game, you need them for the passing game too. Which is why it's imperative, regardless of who the Steelers quarterback is next season. Whether it's Mason Rudolph, Dwayne Haskins, a rookie, a free agent. Whoever it is, Mike Tomlin, Matt Canada, Kevin Colbert, whoever it is that ultimately succeeds Kevin Colbert, because there's still no official word on that, the team's still in the process of going through interviews, all of them need to find a way to put this quarterback, whoever it may be, in the best position to succeed. They have the running back, Najee Harris. They have the wide receivers, Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool, Pat Fryermuth, I'll throw him in there even though he's a tight end. If they can get Juju Smith-Schuster to come back, they'll have him. James Washington, if he doesn't leave through a trade or free agency, Washington could be thrown in there as well. They have the weapons. They've got the running back. They need to build this offensive line because it doesn't matter if you have, if you call Tom Brady out of retirement and throw him into the Steelers lineup. Tom Brady isn't going to do anything with how poor the Steelers' offensive line was last season or even in 2020. They're just not going to do anything. Brady's not going to do anything if you throw him into the current team right now. He may slightly improve their record. So they may go from 9-7-1 to 11-6 or maybe 12-5. But they're not going to win a playoff game. They're not going to get even close to the Super Bowl because the offensive line is so important. And the Steelers need to do everything in their power, absolutely everything, to improve that going into 2022 or it's going to be much of the same struggles as we saw this past season. And that's ultimately my biggest takeaway from the Super Bowl is that offensive lines still matter. They have always mattered. And you have to find a way 
to protect your multi-million dollar arm in your quarterback, regardless of who it is, regardless of the talent they possess. Because those big guys up front are the only thing between your precious quarterback and somebody looking to beat the absolute snot out of your quarterback. So you need to invest time, invest resources, and find guys who are going to protect your quarterback. There's no debate about it. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, looking at the Pittsburgh Penguins as Sidney Crosby still continues the search for goal number 500 and looking at Brian Boyle's best game so far in his career as a Penguin right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Penguins, as I mentioned before the break. Sidney Crosby still looking for goal number 500 in his career. Of course, Crosby sitting at 499 has gotten close, as close as he can, to ultimately breaking that mark, but needs one more to officially surpass it. And in that situation for Sidney Crosby, that's really easier said than done. And I know Crosby is an elite goal scorer. I know he has the potential, without a doubt, to get it done. There's no question in my mind about it. But it's getting over that mental block and finding a way to push through that pressure of knowing you're one goal away from 500. That's what makes it tough. And every athlete out there, it's something you can relate to. It's something that you know and understand the pressure of what Sidney Crosby is dealing with. And when you finally reach that milestone or you finally get that opportunity to prove yourself again, it's like somebody lifted a piano off of your shoulder blades. That's how much pressure there is put on you and how much of it is gone when you finally meet whatever it is you were trying to accomplish. Like, I'll throw in a personal example even. I'm a goalkeeper here on our men's soccer team at Bethany. My first ever collegiate soccer game, I found out the night before I was going to be starting, or at least the potential to start. Saturday morning, two-hour bus ride up to Grove City College. Find out on that bus ride that it's confirmed I'm playing. Just a freshman, never played a collegiate soccer game before in my life, completely nervous. Five minutes into the first game, or into the game, I should say, not, it was my first game. Five minutes into the game, make a costly mistake, and I let a goal in. Five minutes into the game, out of 90. We ultimately end up losing that game 8-0. I made eight saves in that game still. Not to say that, aside from, there were probably two or three more mistakes that led to goals from my end that I would have loved to have cut out. But there was nothing I could do about it at that point. And I'm not embarrassed about going out there and saying that. Because last spring when we were playing due to the pandemic, playing in the spring, not in the fall like we typically do, I got an opportunity again, last game of the season, playing in a conference game here at home against Chatham University in Pittsburgh. Very similar storyline. Five minutes into the game, I concede a goal. Was not my fault this time. It was honestly a tremendous shot. But I fought through it. I kept us in the game. We ended up tying after double overtime 3-3. The amount of pressure off of my back after that game, knowing that my most recent game was much better than the first one I'd played, was absolutely huge. And that's what Sidney Crosby is feeling right now. He very much feels 
similarly to the way that I did after that first game up at Grove City when there was all that pressure. And whenever he scores goal number 500, hopefully tomorrow night against the Philadelphia Flyers, it's going to make him feel the way I did after the game against Chatham. Now, not only is Crosby having the opportunity to score his 500th career goal tomorrow night against the Flyers, he has the opportunity to score his 50th career goal against the Flyers tomorrow night. So not only can Crosby score, as I just said, goal number 500 in his career, but also his 50th against the Flyers. And that would be absolutely incredible for them to be in the same, be one in the same. Crosby has been a thorn in the Flyers' side since day one of his career. And for him to continue to just pat the head of his little brother and continue to smile away is going to make it extremely fun to watch. And there's nothing more, there's nothing better, I should say, than seeing Crosby score that 500th goal tomorrow night. There would be nothing better. Let me just be clear, because I obviously can't guarantee that Crosby will will score goal number 500 as much as I would like to. I unfortunately can't. The only way that Crosby scoring his 500th career goal tomorrow night and his 50th against the Flyers would be better is if they were playing in Philadelphia. That would be the cherry on top of the cake. And the icing, too, of course. That would be, without a doubt, the best-case scenario. Scoring goal number 50 against the cross-state rival, 500th career goal, and also doing it in their arena. That, that, my friends, would be amazing. Of course, I'll settle for it tomorrow night at home, but hearing the boos of Flyers fans recognizing what and knowing that Crosby has just accomplished more greatness is incredible. And I would honestly love to see it if this game was being played in Philadelphia, if, 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 if it was being played in Philadelphia and Crosby scored that goal as the Flyers fans boo him, I would love to see Crosby skating around the ice with his hands behind his ears as if he can't hear them. That would be the most petty thing I've seen Sidney Crosby do, and it would be absolutely amazing to see. I I hope Crosby gets it done tomorrow night, even though it's at home. I hope he gets it done because that pressure is going to be taken off of his back and he's going to be a much more dominant player once he accomplishes that milestone. Not that Crosby hasn't been good because if you look back at the game yesterday against the New Jersey Devils, he had two assists. If you look back in the game against Ottawa, he had one assist. The game before that against Boston was when he scored goal number 499. So he's Still finding ways to get on the score sheet. The last two have just been 
three assists over those two games rather than finding one to hit the back of the net himself. But it's going to happen for Crosby. And I hope with everything I have that it occurs tomorrow night against the Flyers. Because it will just continue to show that Crosby has dominated the Flyers his whole career. And that is one more thing to add to his resume in terms of what he's done against the Flyers. Absolutely much needed. And I just hope that we can see this become reality tomorrow night. If it happens, it'll be something that I, without a doubt, talk about on Friday as I'm supposed to be. The plan is to bring back Mike DeFabo, the Penguins beat reporter for the Post-Gazette, for another interview. If it happens, it will 100% be a topic of conversation Friday afternoon, and you won't want to miss it. But one of the other things that I took away from this weekend against the Devils, after the fact that Crosby didn't tack on goal number 500 yesterday, was that it was Brian Boyle's best game as a Penguin, without a doubt. He only had a goal and an assist. I say that like that's something bad, when in reality it's a tremendous performance from him. And I'm not saying that in a way to kind of bring Brian Boyle down, because Brian Boyle is doing what the Penguins were wanting him to do when he came in, knowing that he was going to be a bottom six forward, most likely spending his time on the fourth line. But the way that Brian Boyle was commanding the ice, both offensively, defensively, yesterday afternoon, just showed why it was, in fact, his best game as a Penguin. He has not performed that way in any game prior. Confidence was through the roof. He was making perfect passes, was tracking back defensively to help in the forecheck, and you could just tell that everything was clicking for him. Everything was working the way that he wanted it to. And that's what the Penguins need out of him as much as possible. Of course, they're not going to be able to get that from him every time because Brian Boyle is getting up there in age. He's 37 years old. He's not going to be able to perform that way every single night, especially as a bottom six forward. But if he can go out there and give that type of performance every three games, then the Penguins are started going to start to truly get their money's worth. And it'll make things hard to take him out of the lineup because, of course, Bluger's still currently out working his way back from a broken jaw. And... Brian Boyle has Bluger's spot right now in terms of being the fourth-line center. So it's pretty much going to come down to Boyle and Bluger for that final spot when both are healthy. Of course, Bluger has the advantage 
being more familiar with the Penguins being here longer, holding that position for the last several years. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Brian Boyle can't play there as well. So, Brian Boyle, absolutely commend him for what he did. But he's now got to find a way to continue to replicate it. He absolutely is capable of it. He's not, he's not a bad player. When Brian Boyle gets himself going, he's a very strong bottom six forward. But the problem is getting him to that point. And he's getting consistent minutes now with Bluger out of the lineup. He's pretty much gotten consistent minutes all season because at some point or another, the Penguins have had one or multiple centers other than himself, meaning Crosby, Mulkin, or Carter, out of the lineup due to injuries or COVID. So he's gotten plenty of opportunities so far this season, and now he just needs to continue to being as strong of a fourth-line center that he can be to make things difficult for Mike Sullivan when Teddy Bluger returns. Because then that is going to create a situation of possibly flexing Carter out onto a wing so that Bluger can slide into the third-line center role and Brian Boyle can stay on that fourth line. If Boyle continues the way he played yesterday afternoon, continues doing that every couple of games, then that's exactly what Mike Sullivan is going to have to do. He's going to have to find a way to put Carter on a wing, whether it be the left or the right, and find a way to get Brian Boyle to stay in the lineup. But there was maybe once or twice this season when the Penguins were fully healthy at the center position, you saw Carter as the third-line center, and Brian Boyle was scratched because he was not performing well at that time. And you want to see guys like Brian Boyle succeed because they provide that veteran leadership to the team. They provide that bottom six scoring threat. It doesn't matter how old Brian Boyle is. He's still going to have that goal scoring instinct. He's just not going to be able to make plays as fast as he once did. He's not going to be able to skate as fast as he once did. He may not be able to release the puck off of his stick as quick as what he once was able to. So he's going to have to find ways to, find new ways, I should say, in order to get pucks into the back of the net and find a way to do it consistently. Consistency is the key in anything, really. But especially when you're a bottom six forward like Brian Boyle, who in the blink of an eye could see himself being in the lineup or out of it, absolutely have to stay consistent. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Got it right that time. When we come back, today's final segment looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates and the baseball side of things in terms of a potential DH candidate internally for the Pirates, along with the impact of the draft lottery right here on the Bethany Online Radio. Is Bethany College Online Radio a service of the Communications and Media Arts Department? 
Window change by Scorpions here on the Bethany Online Radio as we now shift back to the Three Rivers talk show, looking at the baseball side of things in our final segment today. Of course, as I talked to Alex Stumpf from DK Pittsburgh Sports Monday afternoon, it was just released last weekend, rather late last week, that baseball was going to be instituting a universal designated hitter. Of course, the National League was the last portion of professional baseball anywhere in the United States, possibly even the world, to not have a designated hitter. That now, out of the picture, pitchers will most likely, unless by some chance they're not pitching and the manager decides to slot them in as the DH, 
will never step up to the plate again. And in a way, it's sad because the history and that tradition is gone. But as Alex said on Monday, or Friday rather, getting my days all mixed up here, is what he said on Friday, that it's been long overdue, really. And it's something that has been needing to happen in baseball. And I completely agree with him that I was honestly surprised that it didn't get instituted last year after it was in place in 2020. So now the question then becomes, who's going to be the DH for the Pirates when the season starts? Of course, free agents, as was mentioned Friday, are going to come flying off the board as soon as this lockout is done. Players are going to want to get signed. They'll take anything within reason to find a club, get a roster spot, and get to spring training. But the Pirates may opt for an internal position, internal player, to hold that position. So the one option that the Pirates could do is move Yoshi Sutsugo to that DH role. Of course, Sutsugo was the one who won the job over Colin Moran at first base when the DH wasn't part of the equation. And I honestly feel like had the Pirates known that the DH was going to come back in 2022 like it was for 2020, that Colin Moran would not have been jobless at this point. The Pirates would have kept him for first base and signed Sutsugo to be the DH. So if Sutsugo slides to that DH role, then the Pirates may, again, this is looking at only internal options, would slide Michael Chavis to first base. Of course, Chavis more of a second baseman, third baseman type of player, but is capable of playing first as well. So he would slide to first, and then that would open up a gap at second base along with shortstop. Those competitions would take place in spring training. The other option of what the Pirates could do is they could keep Chavis at second, keep Sutsugo at first, and then have O'Neill Cruz serve as the DH. Of course, right now as things stand, the Pirates still like O'Neill Cruz as a defender at shortstop. But that could change when he's consistently at the major league level. Only time will tell. But depending upon how Cruz performs in spring training, with fielding, with batting, he may not have a choice, the Pirates may not have a choice, rather, to kind of shift him into that DH role, focus on really turning him into even more of a power hitter than what he is currently, and have that 35, 40 home run per season guy in your lineup. And O'Neill Cruz certainly has the potential to do that. And then at shortstop, it would be fought out between guys like Cole Tucker, Kevin Newman, maybe even Rodolfo Castro, Diego Castillo, a possibility as well. So those are really the two routes that the Pirates can go. 
personally, if you're going based off of what fits the lineup better, I think it's having Cruz as the DH. Because Tsutsugo is more comfortable and more familiar with playing first than Chavis, so he would be much better defensively. And you would be willing to give what Newman lacks at the plate or what Tucker lacks at the plate and take what Cruz brings rather than not having Cruz in the lineup at all. Because the other choice with Tsutsugo as the DH, Chavis at first, now of the four names I mentioned, Newman, Tucker, Castillo, and Rodolfo Castro, two of them are going to be in the starting lineup. Of course, Rodolfo Castro has a decent bit of power. Diego Castillo, much the same, although Castillo hasn't made his Major League debut even yet. Tucker and Newman don't have any power whatsoever. So you would then have one, possibly two, question marks in your lineup at the plate. And this is a Pirates team that's looking to find ways to drive in more runs, be a much stronger offense. And you can't do that when you have Kevin Newman at at second base and Cole Tucker at shortstop. Because at that point, you're essentially shooting yourself in the foot twice in terms of having poor hitters. And especially when you have the question mark of Roberto Perez and you don't know how he's going to hit, that could potentially be three question marks. Depending upon who your right fielder is, that could be four. So you have to find a way to put together as strong of a lineup as you can. And the Pirates' strongest lineup right now is with Cruz as the DH, Sutsuga at first, Chavis at second, in all honesty, Rodolfo Castro at short. If he can improve defense, he'll be a bit of an upgrade over Newman. Of course, Hayes at third. You've got Perez behind the plate. Gamble in left. Reynolds in center. And then in right field, it's a crapshoot. It's anyone's guess. Because Anthony Alford is not the option that the Pirates should be looking to use. And nobody else that's on a minor league contract should be either. Unless they're going to promote Travis Swaggerty based upon how he does in spring training. Swaggerty in right field is really the only internal option I'm okay with. Anything else? Uh-uh. Got to go out and get somebody to play right field, at the very least, as a stopgap, until you can get someone up to the major league level, whether it be Cal Mitchell or Travis Swaggerty, if he's not quite yet ready for the major leagues. You've got to find somebody to play in right field for that time being that's not named Anthony Alford and that isn't named Greg Allen because those two combined are a league average player at best. Now, the other thing that came about with the, well, the t- two other things that came about with the implementation of the universal designated hitter was there will be no more qualifying offers for free agents to improve the draft market, the free agency market, and also the draft lottery. Of course, the NHL already has the draft lottery in place. The NBA has the draft lottery in place. 
and now baseball is adopting it as a way to avoid teams from tanking. So now if you lose on purpose, which is what tanking is, just in case you weren't aware of that term, you lose on purpose, it's not necessarily a guarantee that you're going to get the number one draft pick. You could have the most amount of losses, and you could find a way to have the fourth pick, which I understand where Major League Baseball is going that in, or going with that because it's not fair to the players or the fans to have a team intentionally lose games and then ultimately be rewarded with a high draft pick and then those players, if they're lucky, aren't seen in the major leagues for four to six years. But on the flip side, then you get a situation where you have those rare chances of a team that may have finished 15 games under 500 could end up with the number one overall pick. And then a team that finishes 35 games under 500 ends up with the seventh pick. And the example I'm going to throw in here is the New York Rangers a few years ago when they drafted Alexi Lafreniere. The Rangers were far from the worst team in the league that season. But they won the draft lottery and were able to pick Lafreniere. And now you see the Rangers as a dominant force in the Metropolitan Division that the Penguins are going to have to deal with for years to come. And it's only a matter of time now with this draft lottery before that happens in baseball where a team is the clear-cut worst team in the league and they don't get the number one overall pick because of a draft lottery. That's why I'm not the biggest fan of this draft lottery. If the league wants to take measures in order to prevent teams from tanking to get that number one overall draft pick, then I totally understand that, and I'm fine with it. You can put tanking, anti-tanking measures in place all you want, but turning to a draft lottery... I don't necessarily see that being the answer because then you're going to have teams that get shorted and should be getting the number one overall pick because of how bad they are and end up not getting it. And that's where baseball needs to compromise. Personally, I think if the league starts to feel that a team is tanking to lose on purpose and get a high draft pick at that point just investigate the team and I know it could be very easy to say well we're not trying to lose on purpose we just don't have that kind of talent but it's much better in my opinion than a draft lottery you know what would really prevent teams from tanking and having very minimal payrolls a salary cap, salary floor system. Who would have ever thought? You look at the NFL. You look at the NHL. You can even look at Major League Baseball. Not Major League Baseball, sorry. The NBA. All of them have a salary cap, salary floor system. Where you have a minimum amount that you have to spend on your roster and a maximum amount you have you can spend on your roster. 
Of course, you still have teams in all three of those leagues that are absolutely terrible. But you don't see, well, prior to the Brian Flores lawsuit, you don't see much at all teams in the NFL being accused of tanking for a high draft pick. The Cincinnati Bengals, two years ago when they got Joe Burrow, were not trying, at least not early in the season, were still not trying to lose on purpose. They just weren't. Maybe later on in the season, eh, their philosophy could have changed. They could have pulled some strings to make it look less obvious. But the point being is that the NFL doesn't have to worry about that. You get teams like the Buffalo Sabres, the Arizona Coyotes in hockey, who struggle year in and year out. They're never being accused of tanking because they have a minimum salary that they're paying their players in terms of roster, the roster as a whole. They're within the salary cap. So from that regard, it's showing that they are competing in trying to be competitive. But Major League Baseball does not have that. Major League Baseball needs to have it. You're not going to be able to cut out tanking 100% until that gets put into place. The draft lottery, they may think it will help. It may help slightly. But especially when you have a draft class like what we had last season for Major League Baseball, where there was no clear-cut number one overall pick, and you could have had five, potentially six players in the mix, like the Pirates did at one point, for who they wanted to take number one overall, you may get pick number five, and obviously the top four are gone. Well, the top four picks have occurred, but it doesn't necessarily mean that whoever was number one in your eyes is gone. That can happen with or without the draft lottery. But if you now put this draft lottery in place to eliminate tanking and a team gets the sixth overall pick and they still get the guy who is number one on their board, are they really going to learn and not tank again in the future? Absolutely not. If they get their guy at fifth or sixth, when they thought they had, or they were going to have to take him at number one overall, then they're going to continue to do what they've been doing. They're not going to stop tanking, and it's going to ultimately become ineffective in terms of using the draft lottery to avoid tanking. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I thank you all for tuning in on this Monday afternoon. I hope you all have a great rest of your week. The remaining hours of your day, hopefully they go smoothly. Tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock. Hope to be joined by Penguins beat writer for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Mike DeFabo. Until then, as I mentioned already, have a great day. And tune in on Friday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.